Gaza is dying and it's not an exaggeration. First things first, the humanitarian aid shipments. Reuters reports that before the October 7th attacks in Israel, some 465 trucks of humanitarian aid were needed per day in Gaza. We're seeing, at best, 20 trucks a day at the moment, says Brian Lander, deputy head of emergencies at the World Food Program. What's more, Israel refuses to allow them to be distributed in the north, where most of the hospitals are. Speaking of hospitals, according to WHO Regional Emergencies Director Rick Brennan, one-third of hospitals in Gaza are now non-functional. We are on our knees asking for that sustained, scaled-up, protected humanitarian operation. Human Rights Watch reports Israel is refusing to restore the flow of water and electricity and blocking fuel shipments, calling it a war crime. Real quick, content critical of Israel is possibly being demonetized and hidden. Find me, GDF, on Patreon or patreon.com slash official. There's tons of spicy videos there. Also, I accept donations. Human Rights Watch notes that Gaza relies not only on aid through Egypt, but on the flow of electricity and drinking water from Israel, which has been completely cut off. In sealing Gaza off from objects necessary for the survival of Gaza's two million inhabitants, half of whom are children, Israel is punishing all of Gaza's civilians for Hamas's attacks. Israel, as the occupying power in Gaza, is required under the Geneva Conventions to ensure civilians have access to basic goods. Al Jazeera interviewed a UK-based nutritionist, Yusra Ashak. Palestinians in Gaza have already been malnourished for years, and for their bodies to now further endure food rationing, it will take a real toll. With a dramatic drop in calories, the body will start to break down fat and then later muscle mass. This is the danger zone when organs can start to fail. Of course, as has been reported for years now, Gaza has already been experiencing a water crisis. Back in 2021, Al Jazeera quoted a resident of Al-Shati refugee camp, Palestine Abdel Karim, who said water came three times a week and sometimes came mixed with sewage. The water reportedly kills plants. Indeed, the U.N. reported years ago that 97% of this water is unfit for human consumption. Al Jazeera reports now that Palestinians have become reliant on private wells and desalination plants. And the last remaining desalination plant ran out of fuel on October 24th. The Gaza Strip runs on fuel. It powers the enclave's hospitals, water pumps, and taxis. As U.N. Relief and Works Agency Chief Philip Lazzarini put it, Without fuel, there will be no water, no functioning hospitals and bakeries. Without fuel, there will be no humanitarian assistance. Undeterred by the looming catastrophe, IDF spokesman Daniel Hagari reaffirmed Israel's position. Fuel will not enter Gaza as Hamas uses it for its operational needs. Hagari, thankfully, appears to have friends at the Washington Post. Palestinian militants use fuel to propel the rockets they manufacture and fire into Israel, as well as for vehicles the fighters drive during operations. In a plea for ceasefire, UNICEF writes, The Gaza Strip has borne witness to a devastating toll on its children, with more than 400 children killed or injured daily.
As for the water crisis, fuel is of paramount importance for the operation of essential facilities such as hospitals, desalination plants, and water pumping stations. Gaza's neonatal intensive care units house over 100 newborns. Some are in incubators, making an uninterrupted power supply a matter of life and death. The Guardian describes the harrowing conditions of the besieged hospitals. Hospital staff and aid organizations report nightmarish conditions, including doctors forced to operate with little or no anesthesia, or by the light of mobile phones and using vinegar in some cases in place of antiseptic. People aren't just in the hospitals to be seen either. Many of them, tens of thousands of them, are seeking shelter from Israeli bombing. More than 20 hospitals in north and central Gaza, which includes Gaza's largest, Al-Shifa, have been told to leave as part of Israel's evacuation order. Omar Abdelmanan, a senior pediatric neurology resident at Great Ormond Street Children's Hospital in London, told The Guardian that doctors are reusing surgical gloves and equipment as they are not able to sterilize properly due to the lack of water. Infectious diseases like chickenpox are starting to spread. It is only a matter of time before we see cholera and typhoid. Reports are abound regarding Israel turning water back on for Gaza's south. CNN reports Israel has since allowed some water to flow through, but the fuel required to pump and clean it is fast running out. Further, according to the UN Office for Coordination of Humanitarian Affairs, or OCHA, this meager supply has declined by 20% since they turned it on. As the water system collapses, some Gazans have been forced to drink dirty, salty water, sparking concerns of a health crisis and fears that people could start dying from dehydration. One vital supply missing from the aid convoys has been fuel. Starting to notice a pattern? Without it, Gaza's water system has crumbled. Fuel is water, says Natasha Hall of the Center for Strategic and International Studies. Cutting off fuel is cutting off water. Oxfam joins the chorus of rights groups warning of waterborne disease, reporting that all five of Gaza's water treatment plants are closed. Additionally, most sewage pumping stations are also no longer operating. Untreated sewage is now being discharged into the sea, and in some areas, solid waste is accumulating in the streets. Clean water has now virtually run out. Compared to the 50 to 100 liters of water per person per day recommended by the World Health Organization, Gazans are down to three. It risks becoming a breeding ground for cholera and other diseases. Aside from the humanitarian catastrophe from the blockade, the Israeli military has also accelerated its bombing campaign. From October 23rd to 24th, the Gaza Health Ministry reported over 700 fatalities. As I'm writing these words now, the death toll in Gaza has reportedly surpassed 6,000. The situation isn't helped by Israel's evacuation order, in which one million were told to flee North Gaza or be killed. Those who want to save their life, please go south. As a leaflet dropped on Gazan residents put it, your presence north of Wadi Gaza puts your life in danger. Whoever chooses not to leave North Gaza to the south of Wadi Gaza might be identified as an accomplice in a terrorist organization. We got a lot of warning calls and a lot of leaflets like these. They basically say that being in Gaza or remaining in Gaza City uh, puts our lives in danger. Further confirmation that Israel is implementing Vietnam war-style free-fire zones. See my last video.
However, despite ordering Gazans to flee south to, in the words of Israel's defense minister, separate them from terrorists, we need to separate them. Israel is still bombing the south while denying them a humanitarian corridor through Egypt. Hundreds of thousands of refugees are being crammed into the southern half of the Strip and still being bombed. 1.4 million are reportedly internally displaced, with 600,000 in just 150 UN Relief Works Agency shelters. They report that at their Rafah logistics base, 400 people are sharing one toilet. No food, no water. Gaza is no less than a horror show. Shortly after the announcement that Israel was blocking food and water, genocide scholar Martin Shaw, author of What is Genocide, wrote, Cutting off power, water, and fuel until Israeli hostages are freed turns Gaza's entire population into hostages. To all intents and purposes, Israel has abandoned serious discrimination for collective punishment. If the threats are carried out, it will be deliberately inflicting on the group conditions of life calculated to bring about its physical destruction, at least in part, as the Genocide Convention puts it. The UN Relief and Works Agency, the unique UN agency designated solely to Palestinian refugees, is, in the words of Commissioner General Philippe Lazzarini, on the verge of collapse. We have report in our log base, for example, where hundreds of people are just sharing one toilet. The UN Relief Works Agency's X account is a waking nightmare. In one week, Israel killed more Palestinians than during the entire 50-day 2014 war in which 2,200 people were killed, including over 500 children. Again, Israel dwarfed that in a single week. And then came the evacuation. Israeli Defense Minister Yoav Gallant ordered over 1 million residents in Gaza's north to relocate south or be killed. Those who want to save their life, please go south. Gaza's north contains all of Gaza City and the largest hospital in all of the Gaza Strip, Al-Shifa. Four hospitals in the northern Gaza Strip are no longer functioning, and another 21 have been ordered by Israel to evacuate. The doctors refuse to evacuate, saying that the evacuation will cause the death of many patients. The UN warned today that the fuel for the generators in the hospitals will run out, which will endanger the lives of thousands of hospitalized patients. It's absolutely impossible to evacuate the hospital. There is nowhere in Gaza that can accept the number of patients in our intensive care unit or neonatal intensive care unit or even the operating rooms. If someone doesn't die from the bombardment, then he'll die from the lack of medical service. The New York Times also reports that while fleeing, an Israeli airstrike struck a convoy of vehicles trying to flee the north along a main highway, according to the Palestinian Health Ministry in Gaza, killing 70 people and injuring 200. In my last video, I reported how, despite telling Gazans to leave, Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu also said that he will operate forcefully everywhere. And, due to Israel enforcing a total blockade, Gazans are unable to flee to Israel, so many sought Egypt. But on Tuesday afternoon, the Israeli Air Force repeatedly bombed their only way out at Rafah Crossing, effectively trapping them inside. 
Despite the evacuation order to separate Hamas from the civilian population, Israel is still bombing the south, which is crammed with hundreds of thousands of fleeing refugees. And as I reported days ago, last Tuesday, the IDF spokesperson said the emphasis is on damage rather than on precision. Writing in the Yedio Aharonat newspaper, reservist major general and defense analyst Giora Island wrote in plain language the benefits of intentionally causing a humanitarian crisis. In a piece titled, This is not revenge, it's either us or them. The state of Israel has no choice but to make Gaza a place that is temporarily or permanently impossible to live in. Every building will be a military target. Further, not to be content with stopping the flow of electricity, diesel, and water to Gaza, but to gradually attack targets that provide these essential needs, and if necessary, also to block with fire any vehicle passage from the city of Rafah to the north. Creating a severe humanitarian crisis in Gaza is a necessary means to achieve the goal. Despite what Israel's ambassador for the United Kingdom claimed in an interview with Sky News. What's the view on the humanitarian crisis in Gaza this morning? Uh, there is no humanitarian crisis because... There isn't? It, there is no. Uh, Israel is in charge of the safety of the Israelis. Hamas is in charge of the safety of the Palestinians. If you're new to the channel, Israel's own leading expert on international law, Professor Yoram Dinstein, disagrees. Writing in his The International Law of Belligerent Occupation, the proposition that the Israeli occupation in the Gaza Strip is over is not the prevalent opinion, and the present writer cannot possibly accept it. Human Rights Watch puts it even more directly. Whether the Israeli army is inside Gaza or redeployed around its periphery and restricting entrance and exit, it remains in control. The ambassador's interview then took a troubling turn. We've been showing pictures this morning that would illustrate that there is a humanitarian crisis in Gaza. Can I ask you something? Yeah. Are you a mother? If your children would have been executed in front of your eyes, would you expect your government to think about those Nazis committing those crimes and to say, wait a second, first of all, we need to protect the enemy? Indeed, Israel's policies have been accompanied by some very alarming and little reported on rhetoric not least of which being from Israel's own President Isaac Herzog. It's an entire nation out there that is responsible. It's not true. This rhetoric about civilians not, aware, not aware, not involved, it's absolutely not true. I sent these remarks to genocide scholar Mark Levine of the University of Southampton, author of Genocide in the Age of the Nation State. His response was informative. It reinforces what I was saying, which is this becomes the Israeli government alibi for treating everybody in Gaza as if they are Hamas. Mass murder is thereby legitimated. Levine was referring to a letter he had sent to The Guardian in which he wrote, Genocide. The word has to be uttered, though it cannot be done with carelessness or flippancy. Israel is on the cusp of committing genocide in Gaza. And in stating that word, with full cognizance and dread of its meaning, I find myself having to say what many people may be thinking, but no one, at least not in the high offices of Western states, are willing to enunciate or act upon. Ordinary Israelis' horrifying trauma this last week at what was visited upon them in the genocidal slaughter and hostage-taking of their loved ones has to find some emotional outlet. When the country's defense minister a few days ago vowed to wipe Hamas off the face of the earth, that understandably resonated with a great many of them. But to destroy Hamas cannot be achieved without obliterating Gaza. And obliterating Gaza cannot be done without either at the very least ethnically cleansing its inhabitants, at this given moment impossible given Egyptian refusal of a safe corridor through the Rafah crossing, or failing that, 
obliterating them. Whether intended or not, every Hamas killer and every other Gazan have become one and the same thing for the Netanyahu regime. Genocides, more often than not, are triggered when a state, usually supported by a significant element of its population, reaches an existential moment of crisis in which its very raison d'etre is thrown into jeopardy. Levine cited Netanyahu. The fate of our country is laid on the table. Additionally, all cite Defense Minister Yoav Gallant as well here. This is a war on the existence of Israel. Levine continues. We are precisely in such a scenario now in which a state leadership in its extremis reaches out for its long tucked away plans of last resort. What will a plan of last resort look like? There's not just a physical war taking place on the ground. There's an information war playing out on platforms around the world. On this channel, I prioritize researching all sides rather than accepting the mainstream narrative. One of my favorite tools I've been using to do this is Ground News. The app and website process thousands of sources from all around the world so you can compare coverage and get deeper insights into every news story. This story piqued my attention. Israel to allow Egypt to deliver limited quantities of humanitarian aid to Gaza. It'll show you the bias breakdown from different outlets on all sides of the aisle. Looking closer, I noticed two distinct narratives. One focusing on aid as a solution, while the other highlights it's Biden's request. It's also interesting to see that more than 80% of these articles are coming from high factuality sources, which tells me this story is less sensationalized. I think what Ground News is doing is really important, and I encourage you to check it out. Go to ground.news slash gdf. Subscribe through my link for as little as $1 a month or 30% off unlimited access and support my channel in the meantime. Veteran investigative journalist Seymour Hirsch, citing his Israeli contacts, painted a harrowing picture. With the starved-out civilian population forced to leave, the Israeli operational plan calls for the Air Force to destroy the remaining structures in Gaza City and elsewhere in the north. Gaza City will be no more. Afterwards, he says, Israel will begin dropping American-made 5,000-pound bunker buster bombs, also known as JDAMs. An improvised version of the bomb, made famous as the Moab, or mother of all bombs, was dropped in Afghanistan by the United States in 2017. Hirsch's Israeli insider source compared the policy to the free-fire zones of the Vietnam War, in which, following a directive by MACV Commander General William Westmoreland, free strike zones should be configured to eliminate populated areas except those in accepted VC bases. If northern Gaza were to go the way of the free fire zone, in which civilians were said to be cleared and only the enemy remained, kill anyone, anyone in there. They rounded up these people like cattle and put them in concentration camps. And if we see them, we kill them. Everyone, men, women, and children, could be considered the enemy. You could not be held responsible for firing on innocent civilians, since by definition, there were none there. In the words of infantryman Robert J. Graham, in an article, interestingly enough, about the American failure in Vietnam, published in Military Affairs. The only problem with this notion, during the Vietnam War and now, is that the Americans didn't only bomb so-called free-fire zones. As the State Department memo put it, Saturation bombing by artillery and airstrikes, for example, is an accepted tactic, and there is probably no province where this tactic has not been widely employed. Which was echoed by BB's threat to operate forcefully everywhere. And the continued bombing of the South, the Israeli's stated destination for the million Palestinians it forced to flee south. I can't think of a more apt or less crude description. At that point, 
You're just shooting fish in a barrel. Lay out your case. That's Raz Siegel, Associate Professor of Holocaust and Genocide Studies and Endowed Professor in the Study of Modern Genocide at Stockton University. We have to understand that the UN Convention requires that we see special intent, declaring a complete siege on Gaza, cutting off water, food, fuel, stating that we're fighting human animals and we will react accordingly. We will eliminate everything. We know that Israeli Army spokesperson uh, Daniel Hagari, for example, said explicitly the emphasis is on damage and not on accuracy. Really, I have to say, if this is not special intent to commit genocide, I really don't know uh, um, what is. Indeed, genocidal rhetoric appears to be permeating Israeli society as we speak. Scouring Hebrew language sources, we can find numerous examples. Danny Dannon, a Likud Knesset member and former UN ambassador to Israel from 2015 to 2020, told an Israeli radio show, Let's clarify, there was a large Gazan public that took part in the riots and the pogrom against the Jewish people. It wasn't just Hamas terrorists, it was also a public. Also, in terms of the abductees, some of the abductees are in the hands of private citizens. I can't say that all the Gazan public is involved, but I can't say how much it is in percentages. I usually stand behind what I say, and I say it clearly. The Gazan public took part in the murder, the massacre, the kidnapping, and even today, the Gazan public, not terrorist organizations, have Israeli abductees in their hands. Yossi Cohen, former head of the Mossad, or the equivalent to the CIA or MI6, justified the siege of Gaza by stating, Civilians from Gaza, civilians, not just Hamas terrorists, took part in the abominable murders of children, babies, and women. The author of this Times of Israel article, Amy Spiro, also commented that, Many Gazans, seemingly civilians, were seen in videos from the October 7th assault rushing through the border fence, taking part in looting and other activities. There have been some reports that they too joined in on murderous attacks on Israelis, though Jerusalem has not said so officially thus far. Rabbi Eli Sedan founded and heads the B'nai David Pre-Military Academy, which has thousands of graduates, many of who serve in the Israeli military. In an interview with Channel 14, Sedan said, These are not innocent citizens from crime. These are citizens who provide the basis for crime. Other members of the Knesset have expressed similar rhetoric, or perhaps even more extreme, such as the Knesset member who called for nuking Gaza, and another who called for the so-called Second Nakba, referring to the mass expulsion of Palestinians from what is now the state of Israel. Right now, one target, Nakba, a Nakba that dwarfs the Nakba of 48. Except this wouldn't be the second one. According to Israel's own estimates, the Six-Day War of June 1967 produced as many as 250,000 refugees. On top of the 750,000 from the first one. In fact, the vast majority of the population of Gaza, something that's not said often enough, are descendants of refugees expelled from what is now the state of Israel. So, people who have been crammed into Gaza aren't even originally from there. They were, and currently are, the victims of a long history of forced transfer, which, according to genocide scholar Mark Levine, always in my book are ipso facto genocidal. The usual pattern is, the Israeli Defense Ministry will claim that they're firing with precision, 
and avoiding civilian casualties at all costs. And further, that any civilian casualties documented are a result of Hamas human sacrifice via human shields. However, following the devastating surprise attack on Israel last Saturday, the Israeli establishment has taken a noticeable and seismic turn. On Tuesday, the IDF spokesman, Rear Admiral Daniel Hagari, stated flatly, The emphasis is on damage and not on accuracy. An unnamed defense official told Israel's Channel 13, Gaza will eventually turn into a city of tents. There will be no buildings. Benjamin Netanyahu has called on Gazan residents to leave and that he will operate forcefully everywhere. And due to Israel enforcing a total blockade on top of the already existing land, air and sea blockade that has existed for 16 grueling years, Gazans are unable to flee to Israel, so they sought to go to Egypt. But on Tuesday afternoon, the Israeli Air Force repeatedly bombed their only way out at Rafah Crossing. That crossing remains closed, and Egypt is now pleading with Israel to stop bombing it in order to let in aid. Most people are taking shelter in schools operated by the UN. Sewage facilities have been hit, leaving solid waste accumulating in the streets. The Jabalia refugee camp, according to the Associated Press, has been razed to the ground. The camp had a population of 100,000 in just one half of one square mile. Its population density was higher than that of Manila, the highest of any city in the world. Of course, this happens every few years. The last major offensive of this magnitude was the Operation Protective Edge in 2014, which destroyed 18,000 homes and killed over 2,000 people. Majority civilian, but you already knew that. Today I wanted to not only comment on the current situation, I wanted to go over the strategy that Israel is pursuing. It is their usual one, the deliberate targeting of civilians. Though this story is usually heavily suppressed, which is why it's vitally important to use my favorite media tool called Ground News. It shows you the political and corporate media bias in the headlines that you see. And you can use it now by going to ground.news slash gdf at the link on the screen now or in the description and comments. Let me just show you how it works. So right now we're talking about the current war in Gaza. I can just type that in. It gives you data on how many news sources have covered the story and the political affiliations of those outlets. It even tells you who owns the publication and whether they're a wealthy family. Super fascinating and also very important information. Using their map feature, you can read from more than 50,000 sources around the world, getting local perspectives from different countries. I'm very passionate about media criticism, and a tool like this is honestly vitally important for all my viewers. Go to ground.news slash gdf to stay informed on breaking news as it's happening around the world. Subscribe through my link for as little as $1 a month or get 30% off unlimited access. The story begins in 2006, when Israel and Lebanon were fighting a brutal conflict which killed thousands and ultimately ended in Israel's embarrassing defeat. Military affairs analyst Bill Arkin even called it a failure. Israel overestimated the purity of its intelligence and the efficacy of its strategy and technology, and underestimated Hezbollah's skill and resilience. The psychological effect that this loss had on the Israeli establishment was palpable. 
Since the earliest days of the Zionist project, Israel relied on what Ziv Jabotinsky referred to as the Iron Wall, or Israel's defense capacity. With a stunning defeat, Israel was no less than desperate. The time had come to find a different target. Tiny Gaza, poorly defended but proudly defiant, fitted the bill. Despite their defeat, Israel would take one important lesson away from its war with Lebanon. Its complete obliteration of the Beirut suburb of Dehia, and a new initiative led by former IDF chief of staff Gadi Eisenkot would bear its name. What happened in the Dehia quarter of Beirut in 2006 will happen in every village from which Israel is fired on. This isn't a suggestion. This is a plan that has already been authorized. Israeli pundit Yaron London would write an op-ed gushing about the new strategy. And forgive me for the lengthy quote, but its candidness is frankly quite shocking. The Tahia strategy is a term that will become entrenched in our security discourse. Tahia is the Shiite quarter in Beirut that our pilots turned into rubble during the Lebanon war. In the next clash with Hezbollah, we won't bother to overtake fortified Hezbollah positions. Rather, we shall destroy Lebanon and won't be deterred by the protests of the world. Thus far, the Tahia strategy was not adopted because Israel attempted to cling to the distinction between good Lebanese and bad Lebanese. This is both good and bad. It's bad because north of us, there is a state that is entirely malicious. It's good because there is no longer any need for complicated distinctions. Israeli strategists' new point of view is that Lebanon is an enemy. We have failed in our sophisticated attempts to distinguish between innocent individuals and sinning leaders. Without saying so explicitly, we reached the conclusion that nations are responsible for their leaders' acts. In practical terms, the Palestinians in Gaza are all Khalid Mashal. The Lebanese are all Nasrallah, and the Iranians are all Ahmadinejad. Too bad it did not take hold immediately after the disengagement from Gaza, we deluded ourselves into thinking that the people are not the same as their leaders and that the people only care about making a living. Such explicit calls for genocide by a public figure are quite rare in the documentary record, especially ones written with so much clarification. In slightly but barely less explicit terms, retired Major General Giora Island would invoke Dehia in his policy prescription for Israel in the event of another war with Lebanon. Serious damage to the Republic of Lebanon, the destruction of homes and infrastructure, and the suffering of hundreds of thousands of people are consequences that can influence Hezbollah's behavior more than anything else. Those of you who have seen my videos on the Korean War will be reminded of the American strategy over the course of that conflict. As the U.S. Air Force put it, the psychological impact of bringing the war to the people is a catalyst that destroys the morale and will to resist. The notorious General Curtis LeMay would lead the bombing campaign in Korea. He very well may have been an early pioneer of the Dehia Doctrine. There are no innocent civilians. It is their government, and you are fighting a people. You are not trying to fight an armed force anymore, so it doesn't bother me so much to be killing the so-called innocent bystanders. LeMay was only carrying on with his Second World War strategy, where he obliterated scores of Japanese cities, and killed hundreds of thousands of people. At least he was self-aware. 
If we'd lost the war, we'd all have been prosecuted as war criminals. The first battle in which Israel debuted its Dehia strategy was the 2008 invasion of Gaza, what the Israelis called Operation Cast Lead. Israel's interior minister recommended that the IDF should decide on a neighborhood in Gaza and level it. And in the words of Israel's deputy prime minister, it should be possible to destroy Gaza so that they will understand not to mess with us. It is a great opportunity to demolish thousands of houses of all the terrorists, so they will think twice before they launch rockets. They should be razed to the ground, so thousands of houses, tunnels, and industries will be demolished. Following the war, the United Nations released a report of their fact-finding mission on the Gaza conflict. The mission concludes that what occurred was a deliberately disproportionate attack designed to punish, humiliate, and terrorize a civilian population. The destruction of food supply installations, water sanitation systems, concrete factories, and residential houses was the result of a deliberate and systematic policy to make the daily process of living and dignified living more difficult for the civilian population. The repeated failure to distinguish between combatants and civilians appears to the mission to have been the result of deliberate guidance issued to soldiers. Despite all of the open Israeli posturing prior to the war, the backlash to the fact-finding mission report was so great that it resulted in a recantation by its principal author, Richard Goldstone, in a Washington Post article. 2014's Operation Protective Edge would, amazingly, be even more destructive than cast lead. Amnesty International roundly condemned Israel's deliberate destruction and targeting of civilian buildings and property on a large scale, carried out without military necessity. I've never seen such massive destruction ever before. With the new Domino's Rewards, you earn free Domino's after every two orders. It's as easy as one, two, free. I've been telling all of you for months to claim this free $6,400. Anyone can get this, even if you don't have a job. I've never seen such massive destruction ever before. In the ensuing carnage, Israel would destroy 22 schools and target UN-run schools being used to shelter <laughs> civilians, including a UN elementary school in Beit Hanun, which killed 13, a UN boys' school in Rafah, killing 12, and a UN girls' elementary school in Jabalia, killing 20. The precise location of the Jabalia Elementary Girls' School was communicated to the Israeli army 17 times. What's more, Israel possessed GPS coordinates of all the UN facilities that it targeted, but still attacked them with artillery and precision-guided missiles. UN Relief and Works Agency sent twice-daily communications to Israel's coordinator of the government activities in the territories and coordination and liaison administration, informing them of the global positioning system coordinates of premises currently being used as designated emergency shelters. Israel also destroyed or damaged 17 hospitals, 56 primary care facilities, and 45 ambulances. Gaza's only rehabilitation center, Al-Wafa Hospital, was also completely destroyed. Israel fomented a media blackout and even banned human rights organizations from the Gaza Strip during the war and even afterward. But the sheer scale of the carnage would inevitably be exposed. And in the end, over 2,200 Gazans lost their lives, of which 1,500 were civilians, 550 of them children. 
Comparatively, 73 Israelis lost their lives, of which six were civilians, including one child. In another stark example of the insane firepower of the Israeli army, just one house in Israel was destroyed during the war, compared to 18,000 in Gaza. And thus, Dahia was fulfilled yet again. Anthony Kordsman of the Center for Strategic and International Studies would write about the lengths that Israeli officials would go to appear disproportionate and perhaps even unstable. One official went so far as to state that Israel had to make its enemies feel it was crazy. I need your help. This channel relies on donations and patrons. Hey everyone, as of this video's posting in late August 2023, Human Rights Watch released a bombshell report leveling charges at the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia for major atrocities and potentially crimes against humanity. Saudi border guards have killed at least hundreds of Ethiopian migrants and asylum seekers who tried to cross the Yemen-Saudi border between March 2022 and June 2023. Human Rights Watch research indicates that, at time of writing, the killings are continuing. I read the roughly 80-page report, along with some other material, so that you don't have to. So let's get right into it. The story begins in Ethiopia, where, according to the United Nations Refugee Agency, there is an unfolding humanitarian emergency. Several regions of Ethiopia are affected by conflict and violent unrest as a result of political and ethnic tensions. In addition, the country is impacted by a range of natural disasters, including droughts, flooding, and locust infestation. As a result of these conditions, according to Human Rights Watch, or HRW, hundreds of thousands have fled the country over the last 10 years or so. With a high demand for migrant workers, Saudi Arabia is a desirable destination for many tens of thousands of Ethiopians who make the grueling journey known as the Eastern or Yemeni route. The migrants first enter Djibouti, then cross the Gulf of Aden to Yemen, often in overcrowded and dangerous sea vessels. They then travel all the way up to the northern border with the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia, or KSA. It is estimated that well over 90% of the migrants on this route are Ethiopian. Human Rights Watch spoke with 38 Ethiopians who had made the attempt at crossing this border between March 2022 and June 2023. The details of this report are extremely violent and can be hard to hear, but I will make an attempt at using vivid detail. All of the interviewees were given pseudonyms in order to protect their identities. Already before crossing the border, migrants often suffer abuse. Yemen, who fled northern Ethiopia as a result of the Tigray War, was unlucky enough to be kidnapped by the very smugglers who promised to bring him to KSA. In Ethiopia, when you communicate with the smuggler, they give you a code, and in Yemen, you give the code over to the Yemeni smuggler. There was a house, and I was put inside it. There was torture in that house. They started to beat me. I left after four days. Smugglers bring migrants to camps separated by ethnicity, which the interviewees say each contain tens of thousands of people. From this base camp, men, women, and children make crossing attempts in groups of up to 200 people. Some trek for hours or even days through mountainous terrain to approach the border, which is straddled by fences, dotted by Saudi guard posts, and patrolled by trucks. Cameras on posts also track their movements. And this is where the bloodbath begins. 
In December 2022, a group of 200 migrants stepped over the line and walked into Saudi Arabia from Yemen. Dahabo, a 20-year-old woman from Oromia, was one of them. Immediately after we arrived, they fired on us. A lot of people were dying. In a group of 200 migrants, only 50 people survived. It wasn't a bullet they were shooting. It was thrown from the back of a car, like a bomb. It kills a lot of people. They fired on a lot of people. A month earlier, in November, Iftu was also part of a group that attempted to cross. We walked five days because we were trying to hide from the police border guards. We were changing our way to avoid them. There was firing from the border guards. They were firing big rocket launchers at us. It was like a bomb. From the 250 people in the group, 150 died. There were 70 or 80 people who were severely injured and scattered all over the mountain. Iftu explained how she was able to approximate the number of dead migrants from her group. She explained that after the firing from the explosive weapons ended, Saudi border guards came to her and showed me the dead. After they captured us, they took us to the top of the mountain to show how they were killing people. Iftu was taken to a detention center afterward for six weeks, and she was one of the lucky ones. In October 2022, 20-year-old Hadia would cross in a large group as well. This would be her last attempt. I was with 170 people. Most of them were women, and there were kids also. The Saudi border guards were firing at us from the back of a car. I saw them throwing something from a car. When they fired at us, people lost their hands and legs, and we couldn't help them because we had to help ourselves. I saw people killed with my own eyes. I saw 20 people dead while I was walking. With over 200 flavor notes, every sip of Woodford Reserve bourbon is a spectacle for the senses. People dead while I was walking. 14-year-old Hamdia, who crossed the border in a group of 60 in February 2023, tells a similar story. I saw 30 killed people on the spot. 25-year-old Desta left Ethiopia due to extreme poverty. He would try to cross three times into KSA. January 2023 would be his final attempt. Border guards on the south border guard post saw us and fired on us where we were resting. We started to run. We were crawling on our hands and a lot of people died and some escaped. We had to go down the mountain and then that's where there is a Saudi farmland. Unfortunately, when we got to the farmland, a Saudi tank was standing there. The tank started to fire on us and killed a lot of people. Most were not killed on the spot. Most were wounded. People were injured and waiting for help, but no one came to help them. Only 15 people survived. Desta told HRW that he was traveling in a group of 200 people. 25-year-old Bilal from West Harargue crossed in February 2023. They, meaning the Saudi border guards, were firing big things like a mortar. They fired it from the back of a car. We lost 130 people that day. The majority were women, and there were children there, too. In what Human Rights Watch calls a particularly chilling incident, Saudi forces fired explosives at a group of migrants that they had just released at the border. Present at the time was 20-year-old Munira. They fired on us like rain. When I remember, I cry. I saw a guy calling for help. He lost both his legs. He was screaming. He was saying, are you leaving me here? Please don't leave me. We couldn't help him because we were running for our lives. There are several people who lost their body parts.
Saeed, a 25-year-old man from Amhara, attempted to cross in March 2023 and was injured by explosive weapons fired at his group. When we started walking, the border guards fired on us and killed 40 people. I saw these people die. I don't want to think about that too much. All of my friend's stomach came out, and the other one lost both her legs. I couldn't bury more people because the firing was still coming. Evidently from the testimony of the victims, rather than mowing down the Ethiopian migrants with machine gun or small arms fire, it is clear that the Saudis are simply blowing them up by firing ordnance at them. This clearly accounts for a large share of the deaths, though there are deaths from small arms fire as well. Human Rights Watch has documented regular, frequent attacks by Saudi border guards using explosive weapons, often followed by border guards approaching survivors and firing the firearms at close range. In one of the most appalling cases, Jahur, a 17-year-old boy, describes what happened to him after he was captured by Saudi forces following his group being blown up. When the firing stopped, they took us. In my group, there were seven people, five men and two girls. The border guards made us remove our clothes and told us to the girls. The girls were 15 years old. One of the men refused. They killed him on the spot. I participated in the... Yes. To survive, I did it. The girls both survived because they didn't refuse. This happened at the same spot where the killings took place. In October 2022, UN officials, including the Special Rapporteur on Extrajudicial, Summary or Arbitrary Executions, drafted a letter to the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia. We would like to bring to the attention of Your Excellency's government information we have received concerning allegations of cross-border artillery shelling and small arms fire, allegedly by Saudi security forces, causing the deaths of up to 430 and injuring 650 migrants, including refugees and asylum seekers, in Sa'ada Governorate, Yemen, and Jazan Province, Saudi Arabia, between January 1st and April 30th, 2022. Those killed instantly are reportedly either left or, if it is safe to do so, buried by other migrants on site. A clandestine cemetery reportedly located at Al-Khals would contain up to 10,000 bodies of migrants allegedly killed in Araku. Human Rights Watch say they are not able to give a specific number of migrants killed, but warn that the number is substantial. HRW interviewed Jamel, a 40-year-old man from the Amhara region who had lived in Yemen for 19 years. In January 2023, Jamel traveled to Sada to retrieve the body of his friend who had been killed while attempting to cross the border. Upon visiting the Al-Jamuri hospital morgue, Jamel noticed that most of the bodies were Ethiopians. I cannot say how many numbers of dead there were, but many. The bodies were piled upon each other. Jamal sent Human Rights Watch a video showing the entrance to a container containing a pile of dead bodies at least four corpses high. Aside from interviews, Human Rights Watch obtained more than 350 videos and photos posted to social media and other sources, and several hundred square kilometers of satellite imagery. The satellite imagery contained images of grave sites, which are growing in size. In February 2022, HRW identified 183 graves at four sites near the Al-Raku migrant camp. By June 2023, that number ballooned to 287 graves. Human Rights Watch interviewed 23 people who traveled in large groups to cross the border. In all, these groups comprised an estimated 3,442 people. 
Ten interviewees estimated that from 11 attempted crossings with a total of 1,278 migrants, they had seen killed or estimated at least 655 deaths. For nine additional... Though the Israeli-Palestinian conflict didn't start with the June 1967 war, the conflict would draw the borders which shaped history to the present day and gave us the occupied territories. In just six days, Israel was in control of the West Bank, East Jerusalem, the Gaza Strip, the Golan Heights, and the Sinai Peninsula. By 1982, Israel had pulled out of the Sinai completely, even dismantling settlements in the process. But as for the rest of the territories, Israel remains earnestly in control despite what Israeli officials say about Gaza. There already exists uh, two states for the Palestinians, one in uh, Gaza, a full-blown state run by Hamas. Israel's own leading expert on international law, Professor Yoram Dinstein, disagrees. Writing in his International Law of Belligerent Occupation, the proposition that the Israeli occupation in the Gaza Strip is over is not the prevalent opinion, and the present writer cannot possibly accept it. Human Rights Watch puts it even more directly. Whether the Israeli army is inside Gaza or redeployed around its periphery and restricting entrance and exit, it remains in control. And despite what Israel's current information minister, Distal Adbarian, says, the Israeli Supreme Court has held that the West Bank is indeed held by the state of Israel in belligerent occupation. The long arm of the state in the area is the military commander. It's hard to argue with the fact that the continuing occupation, which has been called the world's longest, has brought decreasing material conditions and quality of life for the Palestinians. Whether through home demolitions, routine raids in the West Bank, the blockade of Gaza, which has left nearly half of its citizens unemployed and 80% of its water unfit for human consumption, to discrimination, to checkpoints, to settlements, the consequences of the June 1967 war are a continuing issue. The justification for the war has been, in turn, the justification for the occupation. Israel holds the land today because they faced certain destruction at the hands of the Arabs. So the Israeli story holds. The conventional wisdom has held that it was only because Egypt's Gamal Abdel Nasser sought to destroy Israel outright that they launched their preemptive attack on the morning of June 5, 1967. According to Israeli historian Avi Schleim in his mammoth history of Israel, The Iron Wall, the Six-Day War was a defensive war. It was launched by Israel to safeguard its security, not to expand its territory. Okay, so in 1967, the Arabs mobilized for an all-out war. And this includes Egypt, it includes Jordan, it includes Saudi, it includes Syria. This is going to be the big war where they finally get rid of this nascent Jewish state that is less than 20 years old. In 1967, the Arabs, led this time by Egypt and joined by Syria and Jordan, once again sought to destroy the Jewish state. Gamal Abdel Nasser mobilized troops in the Sinai Peninsula in hopes of eliminating the country. But what if that weren't true? What does that mean for the conflict? That would mean that the continuing military occupation of the occupied territories began and is still predicated on a lie. Let's look at the evidence. 
But first, a word from our sponsor. Atlas VPN is offering my viewers for a limited day money back. Use a proper without worrying about PN premium. Thank you for sponsoring this video. The 1967 war needs some context. Just months before the conflict, things had been escalating rapidly between Israel and its neighbors. What was once an atmosphere of animosity descended into a road to war on November 16, 1966. On that day, an armored brigade of 4,000 Israeli troops, accompanied by tanks, launched an attack on the village of Samu in the West Bank, which was then under the control of Jordan. A devastating attack which killed 18 Jordanian soldiers. When the first Israeli column reached Samu, the soldiers started a carefully planned destruction of houses and property. Through shelling, airstrikes, and dynamite, the troops destroyed 125 homes, along with other buildings. This marked the most serious escalation of the Arab-Israeli conflict since the 1956 Suez Crisis. Israel claimed that the attack was a reprisal for Palestinian infiltrators crossing into Israel from Jordan. The explanation had little basis in reality, since Jordanian troops had killed more Palestinians crossing into Israel than the Israelis had. Nevertheless, the outcome of the raid was favorable to Israel, since it stoked resentment between the Arab states, especially Egypt and Jordan. Jordan felt that Egypt had failed to come to its defense. The two countries would reconcile, though, reaching a defense pact, which would have important implications in the ensuing Six-Day War. Also in 1966, the Ba'ath Party had come to power in Syria. Their rule would see the adoption of a hardline stance against Israel, and as a result, the Ba'ath regime began sponsoring Palestinian guerrillas to attack its citizens. Though the attacks were, according to former Israeli intelligence chief Yehoshaphat Harkabi, not impressive by any standard. The Israeli establishment would become outwardly hostile in its rhetoric, and reportedly considered attacking or even overthrowing the Syrian government. With Army Chief of Staff Yitzhak Rabin reportedly getting himself in hot water for saying on an Israeli radio show, the moment is coming when we will march on Damascus to overthrow the Syrian government. The situation was close to boiling over, and just two months before the war, six Syrian fighter jets were shot down by Israeli forces. It's possible that this air war, too, was instigated by Israel. Though he wouldn't admit it publicly at the time, Israeli Defense Minister Moshe Dayan would privately tell reporter Rami Tal the truth in 1976. It would be published 21 years later, after Dayan had already died. I know how at least 80% of the clashes there started. In my opinion, more than 80%. It went this way. We would send a tractor to plow someplace in the demilitarized area and knew in advance that the Syrians would start to shoot. If they didn't shoot, we would tell the tractor to advance farther until in the end, the Syrians get annoyed and shoot. And then we would use artillery and later the Air Force. Israel's strategy of escalation on the Syrian front was probably the single most important factor in dragging the Middle East to war in June 1967. Surprisingly, Moshe Dayan appeared to agree. The nature and scale of our reprisal actions against Syria and Jordan had left Nasser with no choice but to defend his image and prestige throughout the Arab world, thereby setting off a train of escalation in the entire Arab region. This escalation culminated in Nasser moving troops into the Sinai and cutting off the Straits of Tehran, which proved to be the nail in the coffin.
cutting off the Straits of Tehran, which proved to be the nail in the coffin. And on June 5th, war broke out. When the Israelis launched the surprise offensive, they attacked on a Monday, knowing that on Wednesday, the Egyptian vice president would arrive in Washington to talk about reopening the Strait of Tehran. We might not have succeeded in getting Egypt to reopen the Strait, but it was a real possibility. The Six-Day War was the most spectacular military victory in Israel's history. On the morning of Monday, June 5th, Israel launched a surprise first strike against Egypt's air force. Egypt had no fortified bunkers to speak of, leaving its entire fleet exposed. The strike wiped out 90% of its planes just sitting on the ground. And just like that, virtually the entire Egyptian air force was destroyed in less than two hours. When Jordan and Syria joined the war, their air forces were wiped out that same afternoon. Even an Iraqi airfield near the Jordanian border was obliterated. In all, more than 400 enemy planes were destroyed in a day. In one fell swoop, Israel now enjoyed total air superiority against all its neighbors. The UN Security Council introduced a ceasefire the next day, June 6th. By Friday, June 9th, five days into the war, Israel had defeated the ground forces of Egypt and Jordan, capturing Gaza, the West Bank, and Arab East Jerusalem. Now Jordan, Egypt, and Syria all agreed to cease hostilities, but the Israeli offensive continued. Having already captured the Sinai, the West Bank, and Gaza, Israel continued its offensive on the northern front to capture the Syrian Golan Heights. This move ultimately cost Israel its diplomatic relations with the Soviet Union. Did Israel invade Syria to safeguard its security? Interestingly enough, in Israeli historian Avi Shlaim's same book where he claims the Six-Day War was a defensive war, he cites Moshe Dayan's posthumous interview where he describes the Syrian so-called threat. You don't strike at the enemy because he is a bastard, but because he threatens you. And the Syrians, on the fourth day of the war, were not a threat to us. The war is often talked about for its lightning speed, show of military might, and the territory gained. But one overlooked detail is the massive displacement that followed the Israeli offensive. You see here how the war has destroyed the lives of thousands of families, uprooting them from their homes. Roads throughout the West Bank were crammed with long columns of refugees. Civilians desperately crossed rivers through shattered bridges hoping to seek refuge in Jordan. At a cabinet meeting, Defense Minister Moshe Dayan was overjoyed with the number of refugees. I hope they all go. If we could achieve the departure of 300,000 without pressure, that would be a great blessing. The Nakba, or the major ethnic cleansing campaign of 1948, was less than 20 years earlier. Still fresh and vivid memories of massacres, such as the one at Deir Yassin, compelled many thousands to flee. After the war, they would not be allowed to return. As in 1948, Israeli forces made use of psychological warfare units who blared messages over loudspeakers mounted on jeeps, commanding the Arabs to leave their homes. One operation in the city of Kalkilia forced out as many as 12,000 people and destroyed over 800 homes. The instructions were clear. Evacuate the residents and destroy the place. 
This pattern continued throughout the conflict. Among the largest villages cleansed were Imwas, Yalu, and Beit Nuba. According to Israel's own estimates, the war produced as many as 250,000 refugees. Adding to the more than 700,000 produced as a result of the Nakba, the tally of displacement grew considerably as a result of this short but bloody and devastating conflict. We've discussed the Syrian threat, but the principal threat, according to the Israelis, underscored by their first strike, was Egypt. So, did Israel really face imminent destruction from Egypt? In 1967, the dictator of Egypt, Gamal Abdel Nasser, announced his plan, in his words, to destroy Israel. In 1971, the now-retired Lyndon Johnson would publish a political memoir of the presidential years. Regarding the Six-Day War, Johnson would speak candidly about Egypt, which was at the time known as the United Arab Republic, or UAR. During the evening of May 26th, I met with Israel's foreign minister, Abba Eban, who said that according to Israeli intelligence, the United Arab Republic was preparing an all-out attack. I asked Secretary McNamara to give Mr. Eban a summary of our findings. Three separate intelligence groups had looked carefully into the matter, McNamara said, and it was our best judgment that a UAR attack was not imminent. Abba Eban's own autobiography, published the next year, indeed included the shocking admission that Nasser did not want war. He wanted victory without war. A similarly worded summary can be found from, amazingly, the chief of Israel's foreign intelligence service, the Mossad. Egypt was not ready for a war, and Nasser did not want a war. Even top military brass went against the official version. In a speech proclaiming Israel's victory on June 12th, Prime Minister Levi Eshkol declared, the Arab leader's hopes of exterminating Israel were dashed. The first challenge to this myth reportedly began with Major General Matityahu Peled in front of an audience at the Zatfa Club in Tel Aviv. The crowd reportedly went into a shock when they heard the now-retired general say, The thesis according to which the danger of genocide hung over us and Israel was fighting for her very physical survival was nothing but a bluff which was born and bred after the war. Peled had an interesting reason for speaking so bluntly. He was actually offended by people saying that. To pretend that the Egyptian forces were capable of threatening Israel's existence not only insults the intelligence of any person capable of analyzing this kind of situation, but is primarily an insult to the Zahal, meaning the Israeli army. Several other generals then followed suit. There never was a danger of extermination, said Ezra Weissman who commanded the Israeli Air Force during its devastating first strike against Egypt. We were not threatened with genocide on the eve of the Six-Day War, and we never thought of such a possibility, observed General and Deputy Chief of Staff Haim Barlev. And we can't forget the Chief of Staff, who was none other than future Prime Minister Yitzhak Rabin, who told Le Monde in May 1972, I do not believe that Nasser wanted war. And finally, from the mouth of another prime minister. During his tenure in 1982, Menachem Begin stated flatly, the Egyptian army concentrations in the Sinai approaches did not prove that Nasser was really about to attack us. We must be honest with ourselves. We decided to attack him. 
more than half a century of military occupation. While times seemed to have a somewhat civilizing effect on the Jim Crow South or apartheid South Africa, the Palestinians have not shaken their subjugation. In fact, it has only become gravely worse with time. It came as a shock to the Western world when the Second Intifada broke out, on the heels of the Second Oslo Accords, which was seen as such a triumphant success for Jews and Arabs alike. But whereas the Palestinians once upon a time were able to say, drive from Ramallah to Jerusalem in under a half hour, or travel from Gaza to the West Bank, new checkpoints, walls, and Israeli permits almost impossible to attain blocked their free movement. Arabs now use different buses, roads, even using different license plates, causing the progressive constriction of Palestinian life. Indeed, things only got worse after Oslo. More than half a million settlers now reside in the West Bank, with no sign of slowing down, bulldozing houses to pave way for new ones. And with the new Israeli regime more hardline than ever, the prospect of full annexation of the West Bank seems more and more likely. By taking the civil administration of the West Bank out of the hands of the military and into civilian control, it will be administered by the federal government of Israel, with the help of its major patron, the United States. In 2019, the Trump administration officially recognized the Syrian Golan Heights as being under the full sovereignty of Israel. When asked by the press if this sets a dangerous precedent, Secretary of State Mike Pompeo cited none other than the June 1967 war. Israel was fighting a defensive battle to save its nation. I need your help. This channel relies on donations and patrons. Middle East, Israeli defense forces say the Israeli military says Hamas. As Israel says it targeted tunnels and weapons manufacturing sites. Israel says. Israel says. We spoke with the um, international spokesperson from the uh, IDF, Richard Hecht. Israeli authorities say. The Israelis say. Israel says. Israel's defense forces saying. Israel saying. That's according to the Israeli military. Israel, Israel says. Every single time. But over in Israel, prominent journalists stopped believing the military years ago. Back in 2015, Gideon Levy would write a scathing article in the Israeli Haaretz saying, quote, The policy of denial and disconnection from reality is rising to a dangerous level, and the illness is getting worse. Israel further entrenches itself in its imaginary reality. It's all just a matter of Hasbara, the Israeli euphemism for propaganda. Now, the term Hasbara has its nuances. Hasbara is one of those wacky Israeli words that defy translation, but as senior Haaretz correspondent Anshul Pfeffer maintains, Hasbara is simply the act or profession of explaining. Even going so far as to say, Hasbara is now one of the basic tenets of 21st century Zionism. Indeed, many Israeli media outlets and think tanks are comfortable with this official-sounding interpretation. And in fact, Hasbara is a fully codified institution within the Israeli government. After the 2006 Lebanon War, the so-called Hasbara apparatus underwent a massive overhaul, which included the creation of a government office dedicated solely to Hasbara, the national Hasbara headquarters within the office of the Prime Minister. 
Its many arms extend to the Foreign Ministry, the Ministry of Diplomacy and Diaspora Affairs, the Ministry of Tourism, the Jewish Agency for Israel, and notably the IDF Spokespersons Division, the propaganda arm of the Israeli military, tasked with operating the IDF's official website and blog, YouTube channel, Twitter, and other social media accounts. Hasbara is identified as not only a state diplomacy infrastructure, but also a cultural phenomenon. Nicholas Lehman of the Columbia Journalism School once described the propensity of so-called people of the book for disputations over text. Indeed, Hasbara appears to be distinctly steeped in religious fundamentalism. Just take the current head of the Israeli Hasbara apparatus, public diplomacy minister Distal Atbarian, whose plans for the future include denying that an Israeli occupation exists and that the Bible is the Jewish people's deed to the land. Other responsibilities as Hasbara minister will doubtless include overseeing Hasbara operations, the purpose of which being to facilitate the synchronization of Israel's narratives, especially during wartime. For this reason, official military communiques have earned the ire of even seasoned Israeli journalists. The state authorities have acquired for themselves a shady reputation when it comes to their credibility. And it's not only journalists, by the way, but also the IDF's very own Major General Yitzhak Brick, who complained that the military suffered from a, quote, culture of lying. In a stunning expose, Brick described within the IDF a culture of lies, whitewashing, squaring circles, concealing information, and coordinating testimonies of those involved before military police investigations begin. After Hamas was elected to power in Gaza in 2007, the U.S. government sought to stage a coup with the full backing of Israel. They failed. After which, Egypt brokered a ceasefire, which Israel violated in November of 2008 by staging a cross-border raid, which killed six Hamas officials. Despite breaking the ceasefire, Israel formally justified the attack by saying it was in self-defense against rocket attacks. In the air campaign that ensued, part of the IDF's so-called Operation Cast Lead, 3,000 sorties dropped over 1,000 tons of explosives. And, despite Israeli denials, among the weapons were cluster munitions and incendiary white phosphorus bombs. Mark Garlasco, former chief of high-value targeting at the Pentagon, who later worked with Human Rights Watch, would describe his frustration when investigating Israeli forces. They said in Lebanon they did not use cluster bombs. We found four million. They evade answering that they use phosphorus, and we stand there every day watching. How can anyone trust the Israeli military? And though official Israeli statements were replete with falsehoods, a culmination of the Hezbollah apparatus, the state of Israel employed other covert means to push their narrative. In Operation Cast Lead, we turned to Jewish communities abroad, and with their help, we recruited several thousand volunteers, said Ilan Stolman, who is Deputy Director of the Information Department at the Ministry of Foreign Affairs, a key fixture of the Hasbara infrastructure. In an interview with the Calcalist paper, Stolman answered questions about a new professional team of comment writers who will flood websites around the world with pro-Israeli messages and who will participate in discussions about Israel on blogs around the world and on websites such as Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube. Twitter, in particular, would receive, quote, round-the-clock activity. In a pattern that would be repeated in the future, the ministry would recruit educated young people who speak foreign languages and use social media. Our people won't say, hello, I'm from the Ministry of Foreign Affairs, nor will they necessarily identify themselves as Israelis. 
They will speak as citizens and write responses that will appear personal, but will be based on a pre-prepared list of messages compiled by the Ministry of Foreign Affairs. In 2013, the Prime Minister's office would deploy so-called covert units of their own to Israeli universities. Taking to Facebook and Twitter, and also not disclosing that they were working for the government, these units would be set up in a, quote, semi-military fashion, with a student senior coordinator whose tuition would be covered in exchange for their participation. The other students working under them would also receive partial scholarships. The next year, Israel would launch yet another war on Gaza, this time called Operation Protective Edge. After three Israeli teenagers were captured and executed by Palestinian militants in 2014, the Israeli military launched a fake rescue mission, despite knowing that the boys were already dead, an excuse to make mass arrests. The massive air war that ensued destroyed 18,000 homes in Gaza and killed thousands of people. In one of the most devastating consequences of Israeli lies via Hezbollah in recent memory, to use one example which is emblematic of the whole 2014 war, the only rehabilitation center in Gaza, Al-Wafa Hospital, was completely destroyed in the bombing. To justify the attack, Israel tweeted a fake photo alleging to show a rocket being fired from the hospital. But according to Amnesty International, the image tweeted by the Israeli military does not match satellite images of the Al-Wafa Hospital and appears to depict a different location. Such is the nature of the Israeli Hasbara effort, the principal objective being a positive spin on Israeli actions. And as the documentary record shows, the truth is irrelevant. The narrative takes precedent, leading Gideon Levy of Haaretz to go as far as to call Israeli Hasbara a brainwashing campaign, which has enjoyed dazzling success in Israel. And disseminating Hasbara to an international audience is critical to shaping that narrative. During the bombing of Gaza in 2021, Israeli officials briefed thousands of journalists. In just one day, the IDF foreign media spokesman briefed 180 journalists. With the advent of TikTok as well, the state of Israel saw another opportunity, and their official TikTok account gained tens of thousands of followers over the course of the conflict. In fact, according to a recent investigation from Haaretz, the state of Israel pulled out all of the stops even waging a psychological warfare campaign against its own citizens, illegal under Israeli law. Undertaken by the IDF spokesperson's unit, the operation sought not to downplay Israeli war crimes or spin them, but to play them up. Using fake social media accounts in order to conceal their military source, IDF officers uploaded images and video of Israeli airstrikes and tried to make the hashtag Gaza Regrets go viral. The disproportionate destruction of Gaza has its negative consequences on Israeli Hasbara efforts, as described by former Hasbara chief Yarden Vadikai. The damage in Gaza is way, way larger and more dramatic than in Israel. In the world of public opinion, Israel is the stronger side. Palestinians are the weaker side. This is the limitation of Hasbara. You have to say it frankly. Israel is still hard at work deploying armies of keyboard warriors across the internet, and the architects of the operation are quite open about their efforts. Just in 2022, Israel's deputy foreign minister held a webinar for Hezbollah activists, saying it is focusing on getting information out on social media to apply pressure on conventional media. The so-called online briefing was attended by about 100 participants, including activists and social media influencers. 
The deputy foreign minister, who at the time was Mr. Idan Roll, spoke very candidly to them about their important role in shaping public perceptions of Israeli military operations, saying that one of the biggest challenges is to fulfill as many operational goals as possible and as quickly as possible before international political pressure requires the country to halt its campaign. This determines how much breathing space the world gives us to continue hitting our targets, he said. This is where Hasbara comes in. Hasbara gives us time and gives us legitimacy to act and protect ourselves. He called social media specifically an instrument to apply pressure on conventional media. That's the name of the game these days. The following breaking news out of the Middle East. Israel says... Israel says... Israeli authorities say... Hey everyone, thanks so much for watching, and if you enjoy this video... During their two... Why does Israel kill so many civilians? During their 2006 war with Lebanon, Israel pulverized the Beirut suburb of Dehiyah, a Shia neighborhood considered to be a stronghold of Hezbollah. Not only did Israel lose the war, it was a national embarrassment. Worst of all, it was a chink in their armor known by Israeli policymakers as deterrence capacity. Deterrence capacity would measure the reluctance of surrounding states to attack Israel. In other words, how scared Israel's neighbors were of Israel. Despite Israel having underestimated its adversaries in Lebanon and suffering greatly as a result, there would be one lasting legacy that they could learn from. Using the Lebanese suburb as its namesake, Israel developed a Dehia Doctrine. Following the 2006 war, the Gaza Strip would come under new management. Voting out the long-ruling and corrupt Fatah party, Gazans democratically elect Hamas as their ruling government. Wanting to punish the people of Gaza, Israel begins a land, air, and sea blockade, banning a litany of items from entering Gaza. The ban even included medical equipment such as x-ray machines, electronic imaging scanners, lab equipment, and elevators for hospitals. The blockade also restricted everyday food items such as sage, coriander, ginger, jam, halva, vinegar, nutmeg, chocolate, seeds and nuts, biscuits, potato chips, chickpeas, dates, tea, macaroni, sweets, jam, tomato paste, and other items. In 2008, Israeli authorities drafted a document calculating the minimum number of calories that Palestinians could eat before they starved. The idea is to put the Palestinians on a diet. Despite the miserable situation Gaza was in, things would become gravely worse, as Israel would soon launch an invasion in 2008. And invoking its Dehia doctrine, we will wield disproportionate power against every village from which shots are fired at Israel, and cause immense damage and destruction. This isn't a suggestion, this is a plan that has already been authorized. The legacy of Dehia is that Israel will target civilian infrastructure disproportionately and indiscriminately. The IDF should decide on a neighborhood in Gaza and level it. The purpose? According to the UN fact-finding mission following the 2008 invasion, the purpose was simply to punish, humiliate, and terrorize a civilian population. It should be possible to destroy Gaza, so they will understand not to mess with us. It is a great opportunity to demolish thousands of houses. Thousands of houses, tunnels, and industries will be demolished. In 2014, Israel invades Gaza yet again, in what is now known as Operation Protective Edge. What followed was deliberate destruction and targeting of civilian buildings and property on a large scale, carried out without military necessity. <laughs> At 
As usual, Israel claimed the high civilian body count was due to Hamas using civilians as human shields. Human rights groups and journalists found no evidence of this. Nothing was off limits for attack. During the ensuing carnage, Israel would destroy 22 schools and damage 118 others. In standard Israeli fashion, they claimed the schools were being used by Hamas to store weapons. And again, human rights groups and the United Nations found no evidence. Israel also targeted UN-run schools being used to shelter civilians, including a UN elementary school in Beit Hanun, a UN boys' school in Rafah, and a UN girls' elementary school in Jabalia. The precise location of the Jabalia elementary girls' school was communicated to the Israeli army 17 times. What's more, Israel possessed GPS coordinates of all the UN facilities that it targeted, but still attacked them with artillery and precision-guided missiles. Israel also destroyed or damaged 17 hospitals, 56 primary care facilities, and 45 ambulances. Gaza's only rehabilitation center, Al-Wafa Hospital, was also completely destroyed. To justify the attack, Israel tweeted a photo alleging to show a rocket being fired from Al-Wafa. But according to Amnesty, the image tweeted by the Israeli military does not match satellite images of the Al-Wafa Hospital and appears to depict a different location. Different location. Wanting to shield the world from its crimes, Israel banned human rights organizations from entering Gaza during and after the war. But the sheer scale of the carnage would inevitably be exposed. And in the end, over 2,200 Gazans lost their lives, of which over 1,500 were civilians, 550 of them children. Comparatively, 73 Israelis lost their lives, of which six were civilians, including one child. And another stark example of the insane firepower of the Israeli army, just one house in Israel was destroyed during the war, compared to 18,000 in Gaza. Did you see any before and after aerial photos? Sure. Neighborhoods erased. You know what joke was being told in the army at the time? The joke says that Palestinians only sing the chorus because they have no verses left. 89. Protests had erupted in Beijing against the Deng regime of China. Images of the protests and the government's response were splashed across TV screens and newspapers around the globe. The world was fully captivated by this momentous event, and its images have remained some of the most iconic in history. It was this intense and sustained coverage that appeared as an opportunity to others. The same year as Tiananmen Square, a prominent Israeli politician, Benjamin Bibi Netanyahu, who had just served as Israel's representative to the United Nations, was speaking to students at Bar Ilan University, where he was quoted as saying, Israel should have exploited the repression of the demonstrations in China when world attention focused on that country to carry out mass expulsions among the Arabs of the territories. Regrettably, there was no support for this policy. But that's not entirely correct. Perhaps it was not popular mainstream sentiment at the time, but there were some Israelis who sided with Netanyahu on this issue. In 1981 a Dr. Baruch Goldstein penned a letter to the editors of the New York Times. Israel must act decisively to remove the Arab minority from within its borders. Years after writing this letter, Goldstein would don his Israeli military uniform and arm himself with his army-issued Galil automatic rifle. He'd then walk into the Ibrahimi Mosque in the old city of Hebron, located in the occupied West Bank. When worshippers bowed their heads to the floor during Islamic prayer, 
Goldstein unloaded magazine after magazine into the crowd, firing at anything that moved. Hundreds of people would be hit, and in the end, at least 29 were killed in the mosque that day. In Israel, as well as the Palestinian territories, the outrage over this atrocity was immense. It stalled peace talks and created civil unrest among Palestinians. Dozens more would be killed by Israeli forces in the ensuing protests. Many familiar with this event know that the killings themselves aren't the end of the story. Following the massacre, Clyde Haberman of the New York Times would report on the ground from Hebron at Baruch Goldstein's gravesite. The title of the article? Hundreds of Jews gather to honor Hebron killer. Haberman writes, In a steady stream, they came by the hundreds today to the grave of Baruch Goldstein, many bowing deeply to kiss the tombstone of the Hebron mass killer and to proclaim him a holy man. Many journeyed here by car and bus. Whether young or old, they approached the burial mound, surrounded by stones placed in mourning, as though it were a shrine. Dozens hugged and kissed the tombstone. Some kneeled to kiss the grave itself, including one young man who cried out, Hero of Israel! Hero of Israel! There should be more like him! Haberman continues, While the Israelis who worship the Brooklyn-born Dr. Goldstein are a small minority, the numbers turning out today suggested that they may be more than the minuscule fraction the government claims. Indeed, the support appears to be beyond just nameless civilians. Dove Lior, the chief rabbi of the Kiryat Arba settlement of Hebron, where Baruch Goldstein lived, called him holier than all the martyrs of the Holocaust. The Jerusalem Post described Lior as one of the most high-profile national religious rabbis in the country. As a result of this mass shooting, the Israeli government outlawed the radical Kach party, of which Baruch Goldstein was a member. Another member was a young Itamar Ben-Gavir, who joined the party when he was just 16. He would go on to become the party's youth leader. Ben-Gavir remained politically active following the outlawing of Kach and is now famously the leader of the Otzma Yehudit, or Jewish Power Party. Otzma Yehudit is believed by Israelis to be the spiritual successor to the Kach Party. Ben Gavir has a colorful past filled with calls for ethnic cleansing of Palestinians. In fact, he was so radical in his politics that he was barred from conscription into the Israeli military. To underscore his devotion to extremism, Ben Gavir hung a poster of Baruch Goldstein on the wall of his living room. He reportedly took it down in 2019. In an unsuccessful attempt to appease Naftali Bennett, who vetoed his inclusion into his right-wing coalition over the poster, it's not known whether he put it back up afterward. Of course, Ben Gavir has now become the Minister of Security of the State of Israel. In what is Israel's most right-wing government, possibly in history. At the Otsma Yehudit campaign launch in 2019, Ben Gavir thanked his spiritual mentor, none other than Dov Lior, and brought him on stage to resounding applause. As Minister of National Security, Ben Gavir holds one of the most important positions in Bibi Netanyahu's new cabinet. Ben Gavir has called for harsher crackdowns on Palestinian militants and their supporters as well as strict curfews in Palestinian villages. 
and mass deportations and targeted killings of terrorism suspects. Ben-Gavir would also like to authorize a shoot-to-kill policy for Palestinians who throw stones at Israelis. In these beliefs, he's also joined by the new finance minister Bezalel Smotrich. Smotrich, leader of the religious Zionist party, is no stranger to controversy himself. In 2021, he told Arab lawmakers in the Knesset that they are in Israel by mistake because founder of Israel David Ben-Gurion didn't, quote, finish the job when expelling the Arabs. Smotrich and Ben-Gavir will enjoy free reign under Prime Minister Netanyahu, back as premier after a less than two-year hiatus. As a result, we'll surely be seeing harsher treatment of Palestinians. And what's looking increasingly likely is the outright annexation of the occupied West Bank. Smotrich is insisting that the civil administration of the West Bank be transferred to his finance ministry, a move that is seen by many to be de facto annexation already. By taking the civil administration of the West Bank out of the hands of the military and into civilian control, it will be administered by the federal government of Israel. On top of that, the border police operations of the West Bank will be relinquished to the newly named National Security Ministry, which will in fact be headed by Itamar Ben-Gavir. Along with expanding settlements and annexing the West Bank, Benjamin Netanyahu's history of steady invasions and saturation bombings of Palestinians particularly in Gaza, will have to be closely watched. And I strongly advise everyone watching this now to prepare for this likely scenario and to diligently update yourselves on news coming out of Gaza. Remember at the beginning of this video when I read you that BB quote saying that he wishes he'd use the Tiananmen Square massacre as an opportunity to expel Arabs from the occupied territories? Be wary of this pattern in the future. Like in 2014, when Bibi launched a ground invasion on the same exact day that Malaysia Flight 17 was shot out of the sky over Ukraine. The moments when news events spike media coverage and drown out other stories is precisely the time that we should be looking into Gaza and the West Bank. I need your help. Young Last thing. I'm going to things back. Cheng, let me ask you a question. You mentioned genocide there. What Hamas is actually in his charter dedicated to doing is the purest personification of genocide. Well, it is. They want to see the eradication yeah. of Israel, and they proved on October the 7th they will kill as many Jews as they can possibly get their hands on. So that is pure genocide. What Israel yeah. is doing in return, I don't think meets the category of genocide. Right, because they don't want no, to get rid of every Palestinian. They don't want to kill every Palestinian. No. They want to kill every Hamas standard. terrorist. No. It only takes mere seconds to introduce a sentence to millions of people, mind you, that contains numerous presuppositions that are faulty. Setting aside the fact that Hamas rarely invokes the charter, according to a 2009 report from the United States Institute of Peace, a federal institution which read, the charter itself contains statements that reflect a lack of hostility toward Jews on the basis of religion. For example, as Article 31 states, under Islam, the followers of the three religions, Islam, Christianity, and Judaism, may coexist peacefully and safely. 
Whether or not one accepts this statement as true, it is incompatible with claims of a religious obligation to kill Jews. Regardless, the report also states that Hamas has, in practice, moved well beyond its charter. Hamas has been carefully and consciously adjusting its political program for years and has sent repeated signals that it may be ready to begin a process of coexisting with Israel. Further, Hamas leader Khaled Meshal urged outsiders to ignore the Hamas charter. In 2017, Hamas revised its charter altogether. According to the RAND Corporation, the major defense think tank, Hamas dropped the language explicitly calling for Israel's destruction, which suggests an effort by Hamas to portray itself as more of an Islamic national liberation movement. Setting aside the fact that Hamas took hostages, evidently not killing every Jew that they could get their hands on, and that some of the dead were reportedly killed by the Israeli military, according to an article from the Israeli Yedio Aherna, after the pilots realized that it was very difficult to distinguish between terrorists and Israeli soldiers or civilians, the decision was made that the first objective of the fighter helicopters is to stop the deluge of terrorists. 28 fighter helicopters shot over the course of the day all of the ammunition in their bellies. We are talking about hundreds of 30-millimeter cannon mortars and Hellfire missiles. The frequency of fire at the thousands of terrorists was enormous at the start, and only at a certain point did the pilots begin to slow their attacks and carefully choose the targets. According to the Air Force, in the first four hours from the start of the battles, helicopters and fighter craft attacked about 300 targets most in Israeli territory. They explain in these articles uh, that what they saw at the beginning of this air operation was complete chaos. Uh, and in fact, here reported by, reported by Haaretz, a journalist on X, who says that this 48-year-old man that we see in this picture was killed by the IDF uh, after being mistakenly uh, confused, identified as a terrorist. Setting all that aside, Pierce shows a fundamental lack of understanding of what genocide is. Perhaps this is an opportunity for others to learn as well. As the war grinds on, the IDF has been on a full-blown media assault. And as the humanitarian crisis worsens, it is of the utmost importance that we all have access to unbiased sources. I've been using this app and website by Ground News, and it's become my go-to resource to get the full picture. This article recently, mainly from left-leaning sources. Headlines paint a less dire, but Ground News is doing is really important, and I encourage you to check it out. Go to ground.news slash gdf. Subscribe through my link for less than $1 a month, or take advantage of their biggest discount of the year 40 percent off their vantage plan for unlimited access which is what i have get access to data-driven information and support my channel in the meantime if you've got an android phone and support my channel in the making the case that israel is committing genocide is quite simple as explained by Craig McIver, who made headlines for resigning from the United Nations. McIver was the director of the New York office of the UN High Commissioner for Human Rights. Usually the most difficult part of proving genocide is intent. In this case, the intent by Israeli leaders has been so explicitly stated and publicly stated by the prime minister, by the president, by senior cabinet uh, ministers, by military leaders, that that is an easy case to make. It's on the public record. The day of the October 7th Hamas attack, Benjamin Netanyahu addressed the people of Israel.
Later that day, Israeli Energy Minister Israel Katz announced that Israel would shut off all electricity to Gaza, followed by what was will not be. We'll remember that it was on October 9th when Defense Minister Yoav Gallant announced no food, no water, no gas, it's all closed. We're fighting animals and are acting accordingly. Just days later, he told troops. Of course, we remember that October 10th, IDF spokesman Daniel Hagari revealed that Israel had begun dropping hundreds of tons of bombs and that the emphasis is on damage and not accuracy. Later that day, Major General Ghassan Alian, head of the Coordinator of Government Activities in the Territories, explained, And reservist General Giora Island wrote an article declaring that Gaza will become a place where no human being can exist. When asked about the ensuing humanitarian situation in Gaza, Israel's president Isaac Herzog stated, It's an entire nation out there that is responsible. I said these remarks to genocide scholar Martin Shaw of the University of Sussex, who said the comment shows a genocidal mentality, and genocide scholar Mark Levine of the University of Southampton, who suggested that the comment was the Israeli government alibi for treating everybody in Gaza as if they are Hamas. Mass murder is thereby legitimated. Herzog was pressed about the comment further. You seem to hold the people of Gaza, the civilians of Gaza, responsible. That makes them legitimate targets. No, I didn't say that. Yoav Gallen has been slightly more unapologetic. A month later, amid growing tensions with Lebanon, he revealed, It is the citizens of Lebanon that will pay the price of these kinds of mistakes. What we are doing in Gaza, we can do in Beirut. It's fair to say that the Israeli officials have been mouthy. It's hard to explain just how significant comments like these are. In the trial judgment for the case against Jean-Paul Akiyezu during the criminal tribunal for Rwanda, the chamber considers that intent is a mental factor which is difficult, even impossible to determine. This is the reason why, in the absence of a confession from the accused, his intent can be inferred from a certain number of presumptions of fact. Factors such as the scale of atrocities committed, or furthermore, deliberately and systematically targeting victims on account of their membership of a particular group can enable the chamber to infer the genocidal intent of a particular act. So there's a case to be made that even absent these statements, we could infer genocidal intent. Continuing with the Akiezu trial judgment, in a section regarding one of the Genocide Convention's core tenets, deliberately inflicting on the group conditions of life calculated to bring about its physical destruction in whole or in part, which the International Criminal Tribunal for Rwanda found should be construed as the methods of destruction by which the perpetrator does not immediately kill the members of the group, but which ultimately seek their physical destruction. The chamber is of the opinion that the means of deliberate inflicting on the group conditions of life calculated to bring about its physical destruction in whole or in part include inter alia, Subjecting a group of people to a subsistence diet, systematic expulsion from homes, and the reduction of essential medical services below minimum requirement. This is essentially the smoking gun. We shouldn't have to explain just how Israel is self-evidently executing exactly every one of these criteria, but sadly we will now. Now it should be known before October 7th. Gazans were already on a subsistence diet. In 2012, Amira Haas wrote for Haaretz an article confirming the existence of a so-called Red Lines document, drafted by Ehud Almert's cabinet in 2008, shortly after the beginning of the ongoing blockade. 
The Red Lines document calculates the minimum number of calories needed by every age and gender group in Gaza, then uses this to determine the quantity of staple foods that must be allowed into the Strip every day, as well as the number of trucks needed to carry this quantity. On average, the minimum worked out to 2,279 calories per person per day. From this, they reduced the quantity of fruits and vegetables, milk, and meat and poultry. Echoing what attorney Dove Weisglass, a senior advisor to Olmert, said in 2006, the idea is to put the Palestinians on a diet, but not to make them die of hunger. Amira House continues, the drafters of the Red Lines document noted that the quantity of fruit and vegetables Gaza could produce for itself was expected to decline from 1,000 tons a day to 500 within a few months due to the Israeli ban on bringing in seeds as well as the ban on exporting produce. They predicted a similar fate for the poultry industry, but they didn't propose any solution for this decline. Even with this generous allotment of calories, then-Gaza director for the UN Relief and Works Agency, Robert Turner, complained, food imports consistently fell below the red lines. This trend continued. Before October 7th, 63% of the population was considered food insecure, according to the World Health Organization. This was with 500 trucks entering Gaza per day. Harvard economist Sarah Roy, considered the foremost expert on Gaza's economy, wrote in a recent editorial, there is a desperate need for basic resources in Gaza, including food. Despite this, the first aid convoys weren't allowed into Gaza until October 21st. According to the United Nations Office for the Coordination of Humanitarian Affairs, by November 7th, a total of 650 trucks had entered Gaza or 36 trucks per day. Essential items such as rice, legumes, and vegetable oil have almost disappeared in the market. Wheat flour, eggs, and dairy products are no longer available in shops across Gaza. And by November 7th, the amount of drinking water entering Gaza could only serve 4% of the population. Not surprisingly, there have been a growing number of reports indicating that people are drinking seawater and contaminated water from agricultural wells. Roy concludes that Gaza is approaching a state of total collapse, and this collapse is undeniably one of choice. This The Associated Press painted a grueling picture of the situation on the ground for families searching for food. Supermarket shelves are nearly empty. Bakeries have shut down because of lack of flour and fuel for the ovens. Gaza's farmland is almost inaccessible, and there's little in produce markets beyond onions and oranges. Families cook lentils over small fires in the streets. You hear children crying in the night for sweets and hot food, said Ahmed Khan, a photographer at a shelter in the southern town of Rafa. I can't sleep. Many people say they've gone weeks without meat, eggs, or milk, and now live on one meal a day. There is a real threat of malnutrition and people starving, said Ali Zaki, spokesperson for the UN's World Food Program. What aid workers call food insecurity is the new baseline for Gaza's 2.3 million people. According to OCHA, or the UN Office for Coordination of Humanitarian Affairs, on November 4th and 5th, seven water facilities across the Gaza Strip were directly hit and sustained major damage, including three sewage pipelines in Gaza City, 
two water reservoirs in Gaza City, Rafah, and Jabalia refugee camp, and two water wells in Rafah. The Gaza municipality warned about the imminent risk of sewage flooding. Indeed, the targeting of water infrastructure prompted Euromed to describe Israel's campaign as a war of starvation. The Israeli war of starvation has taken very dangerous turns, including cutting off all food supplies to the northern half and bombing and destroying factories, bakeries, food stores, water stations, and tanks throughout the entire enclave. Prior to the ongoing Israeli war, 70% of the Gaza Strip's children suffered from varying health issues, including malnutrition, anemia, and weakened immunity. However, Euromed Monitor said the number has increased to over 90% as a result of the unprecedented Israeli attacks. Strikingly, before October 7th, when 97% of water was unfit for human consumption, since then, there is 92% less water consumption. Further, the only mill in Gaza able to grind wheat is not working due to a lack of electricity and fuel. Eleven bakeries have been hit and destroyed since October 7th. But as UN Relief and Works Agency Gaza Affairs Director Thomas White noted, people are beyond looking for bread. It's looking for water. In terms of systematic expulsion from homes, on October 13th, Israel ordered residents north of Wadi Gaza, a river and wetland, numbering 1.1 million people to evacuate to the south of the Strip. After which Michael Schmidt, a scholar of the Lieber Institute at West Point Military Academy, opined, I struggle to see how warnings that Gaza City is about to be attacked and civilians should leave can be characterized as anything other than actions designed to minimize loss of life and injury which spurred a rebuttal from Yusuf Syed Khan, a senior lawyer at Global Rights Compliance, who wrote, giving effect to an order to displace through acts of coercion in such a context might include the IDF's repeatedly using the word must to communicate and qualify the parameters of both the insistence upon evacuation and possible return, as well as relentless attacks against civilians or civilian infrastructure, including schools and hospitals, coupled with the complete denial of humanitarian aid, which may be said to render life uninhabitable in a certain area. Further, Israel's energy minister Israel Katz made it clear when he said, All the civilian population in Gaza is ordered to leave immediately. We will win. They will not receive a drop of water or a single battery until they leave the world. Indeed, the alternative to leaving was declared in no uncertain terms by Defense Minister Yoav Gallant. Those who want to save their life, please go south. And by IDF leaflets and cell phone audio messages. Your presence north of Wadi Gaza puts your life in danger. Whoever chooses not to leave North Gaza to the south of Wadi Gaza might be identified as an accomplice in a terrorist organization. And the destruction of homes and property ensured that there's nowhere for them to go back to. According to the UN, as of November 8th, at least 45% of homes in Gaza, not North Gaza, but all of Gaza, are either damaged or completely destroyed. In the trial judgment for Malada Naledelic and Vinko Martinovic, the criminal tribunal for Yugoslavia interpreted that the deliberate destruction of homes was indicative of intent to forcibly displace civilians. When a genuine evacuation takes place, there is an obligation to bring the population back when the hostilities have ended. No attempts to return them were made. In fact, most of their houses were torched. 
With regard to bringing the population back, in the words of Israeli Minister of Foreign Affairs Eli Cohen, at the end of this war, not only will Hamas no longer be in Gaza, but the territory of Gaza will also decrease. Indeed, Francesca Albanese, special rapporteur for human rights in the occupied territories, warned that Palestinians are in grave danger of mass ethnic cleansing. The situation in the occupied Palestinian territory and Israel has reached fever pitch. Just days later, she and several other special rapporteurs, including the special rapporteur on human rights of displaced persons, warned a risk of genocide against the Palestinian people. At the end of October, a worrying so-called concept paper had circulated around social media, reportedly from the Israeli Ministry of Intelligence, detailing a plan to expel all of Gaza's population, 2.3 million people, into Egypt. The plan called for establishing tent cities in Egypt, creating a humanitarian corridor, then building cities in the northern Sinai to house the refugees for the long term, with a security zone to prevent Palestinians from returning to Gaza. Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu's office played down the report compiled by the intelligence ministry as a hypothetical exercise. But, according to the New York Times, Israel has quietly tried to build international support in recent weeks for the transfer of several hundred thousand civilians from Gaza to Egypt for the duration of its war in the territory according to six senior foreign diplomats. Israeli leaders and diplomats have privately proposed the idea to several foreign governments, framing it as a humanitarian initiative that would allow civilians to temporarily escape the perils of Gaza for refugee camps in the Sinai Desert, just across the border in neighboring Egypt. Just one small problem, as described by the Criminal Tribunal for Yugoslavia in the appeal judgment for Milomir Stakic. Although displacement for humanitarian reasons is justifiable in certain situations, the appeals chamber agrees with the prosecution that it is not justifiable where the humanitarian crisis that caused the displacement is itself the result of the accused's own unlawful activity. With regard to Bosnian Muslims, the displacement was involuntary and that, to the extent it had a humanitarian purpose, this was only because of a humanitarian crisis that the appellant himself had deliberately caused. Finally, we have the reduction of essential medical services below minimum requirement. Well, Human Rights Watch on November 14th called for Israel to be investigated for war crimes. The Israeli military's repeated, apparently unlawful attacks on medical facilities, personnel, and transport are further destroying Gaza's healthcare system and should be investigated as war crimes. Hospitals have run out of medicine and basic equipment, and doctors told Human Rights Watch that they were forced to operate without anesthesia and to use vinegar as an antiseptic. Indeed, a doctor at Al-Aqsa Hospital told Human Rights Watch there is a huge shortage of medicines. No electricity, no diesel, no solar, no water to drink or to use. Human Rights Watch reminds us that the International Criminal Court's Rome Statute prohibits as a war crime intentionally directing attacks against medical units and transport. In a staggering example, the International Eye Hospital in Gaza City was hit two different times on two different days by what Human Rights Watch described as a large air-dropped munition. The hospital posted on Facebook that the International Eye Hospital no longer exists. It has been completely destroyed. The Turkish Palestinian Friendship Hospital, which housed the only specialized cancer treatment center in all of Gaza, was hit two nights in a row. The hospital shut down on November 1st because of the airstrikes and lack of fuel.
Indeed, the WHO has reported on November 12th that premature and newborn babies on life support are reportedly dying due to power, oxygen, and water cuts at Al-Shifa Hospital. For those of you that don't know, Al-Shifa is the largest hospital in all of the Gaza Strip. Staff across a number of hospitals are reporting lack of fuel, water, and basic medical supplies, putting the lives of all patients at immediate risk. More than half of the hospitals in the Gaza Strip are closed. Those still functioning are under massive strain and can only provide very limited emergency services, life-saving surgery, and intensive care services. The WHO had also warned on November 8th that the current disease trends are very concerning. They report that before October 7th, reports of diarrhea were steady at 2,000 cases a month. Now, since mid-October 2023, over 33,000 cases of diarrhea have been reported. Over half of these are among children under age 5. There's also scabies and lice, chicken pox, skin rash, and upper respiratory infections. Lack of medicines for treating communicable diseases further increase the risk of accelerated disease spread. You see, it's simple. Just a simple gander at the bare facts lays out in clear terms the situation. When compared to the standards upheld time and time again in the criminal tribunals which convicted others of crimes against humanity and genocide, it begs the question, why doesn't the International Criminal Court issue arrest warrants for Yoav Gallant and Netanyahu and Israel Katz and others? It's not complicated. It's genocide. Hey everyone, thanks so much for watching. And if you 